Thank you, Amelia. Long passages of scripture to be read today. Uh, let's um, prepare our hearts to hear God's word by going to Him in prayer. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this day, the day that you have made that we can rejoice and be glad in. I pray that as we open your word, that you would speak to us as only you can by your Holy Spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Today's the fifth Sunday of Lent. It's a long period in which we prepare ourselves in the Christian calendar you know, leading up to the way of suffering, the Via Dolorosa is, is the uh, translation of that. And, and, you know, sometimes it, it seems to me like Lent means you suffer long by hearing long passages of Scripture. <laughs> uh, and uh, anyway, what we do know, if we've been following uh, the sermons through Lent, uh, we're tracing Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem and towards the ultimate destiny to which God had uh, sent him to earth right? Uh, uh, heading towards the cross into Calvary. But as you know, there have been a number of recurring themes that have uh, popped up in each of the um, passages we've looked at from the Gospel of John. For example, one that's very evident is the fact that, you know, Jesus um, worked many signs and wonders. Miracles starting with Cana in, Galilee, uh, in Cana, where at a wedding he turned water into wine. You also hear stories of him healing an official's son from afar. How he also uh, caused an invalid, uh, a crippled person by the pool of Bethesda to uh, rise again, take up his mat and walk. We read the tremendous miracle of him feeding 5,000 with just five loaves and two fish. And uh, after that, immediately he walks on water. And uh, last week, we heard, of course, of the beggar who was born blind and how God healed his sight. But and now we get to the most impressive miracle of all up to this point. Of course, the raising of Lazarus. But the other theme that sort of uh, comes through is this theme of uh, uh, belief. You know, uh, from the time we saw in, in John 3.16, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Yesterday I was testing our young people, and I asked them, you know, how, much, how many of you have been memorizing Scripture? I hope you have, you know, we do this often in Sunday school, and I, you know, if you haven't been memorizing Scripture, let me teach you one Scripture that all of us can memorize, and it's the shortest verse in the Bible. What is it? Let's read it together. Jesus wept, and then you must say the reference, right? John eleven thirty five. 35. We always teach them memorization. It's good to know the reference, otherwise you remember the verse, you can't remember where to find it. Right? But Jesus wept is the shortest verse in the Bible. And I want to take uh, um, the, the perspective from Jesus weeping and the fact that he wept and ask ourselves the question, what does Jesus weep over? As we look at this passage, what is it that moves his heart? What is it uh, that caused him to weep? And I guess the first thing you could consider is the fact that there is faith growing in the disciples, but there's also unbelief. And uh, we see, let's pick it up from the first verse. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, village of Mary and her sister Martha. 
It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. As an aside, you know, we know, of course, the story of Mary and Martha. And it's interesting that John, you know, uh, uh, talks about an event that's yet to happen because it's only in chapter 12 that we uh, hear or we, we, we read about Mary anointing Jesus with expensive uh, ointment, right? Not of one pound was worth 300 denarii, which is almost a year's wages. You know, and you stop and you think about it. This uh, past week, I was in a retreat and at a dinner table, someone was sharing, they had been invited, you know, uh, a lot of the people around the table were part of um, social services and things like that. And they were invited to an event because there was going to be a donation made to them for the price of a bottle of whiskey. And he thought, oh, okay, bottle of whiskey, how expensive can that be? <laughs> so they brought out this bottle of Macallan uh, 62-year-old whiskey, which only had 100 bottles for all of Southeast Asia. <laughs> And they put the bottle there, and then they gave them a little, you know, sip, and then showed them, you know, how you twirl it around the glass, and you smell, and then taste, and he did all those things. It's like, it's just whiskey <laughs> in his mind. <laughs> and he found out how much that bottle of whiskey cost. $38,000. <laughs> and then he almost spit the thing out of his mouth. It's like, <laughs> it's $200 a swallow, <laughs> you know? And, and you can imagine, actually, uh, uh, many scholars believe Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were actually quite wealthy. You know, to have a, that sort of ointment in your house, it's not an average uh, person's uh, ability to afford. Uh, uh, but nonetheless, he is pointing out that, you know, he, it's for the glory of God that this healing and these signs and wonders take place. As we've uh, been sharing, you know, all these signs point towards who Jesus is, the glory of God is that Jesus is God in the flesh who walked amongst us. But we carry on in this passage, verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let's go to Judea again. The disciples answered, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? What's going on here? You have to read the passage to understand. Actually, you know, there was opposition to Jesus' building. And time and time again, you know, he, uh, uh, the things he was teaching, the things he was saying, really brought threat to those who were in uh, leadership in the Jewish nation. And that certainly happened in the last chapter, chapter 10. In fact, in the last few verses, he had said to them, I and the Father are one. Because they were challenging him, are you the Christ? Say so plainly. <laughs> and he said it, I and the Father are one. And the Jews then picked up stones again to stone him. Again, there, there are actually three other, uh, or two other incidences where you know, they wanted to stone Jesus. But Jesus answered, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which of them are you going to stone me? And this is their reply. It's not good for it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. All those people who say Jesus is just a good teacher, you know, you, you cannot dismiss the fact that Jesus didn't deny. I mean, he taught good things, but he didn't deny the fact 
In fact, he made it plain that he said, I am God in the flesh. That I am God with you. And, and there's no denying that. You know, and uh, he had then immediately fled Judea, the Jerusalem area, and went to the place where John had been baptizing. And that's where he was uh, at the point of time when he heard the news and had to travel back to uh, uh, Jerusalem. You know, and of course they were afraid. Like, you know, your life's threatened. Lord, are you sure you want to do that? Because uh, obviously if his life is threatened, their lives would be threatened too. But Jesus assured them, you know, I'm the light of the world. I'm not going to go through this and expound it because, you know, there's a lot of richness in it. But basically he was saying to them, relax, I'm with you. What do you have to worry about? You know, I uh, walk with you in the light and, and, you know, then you see the classic miscommunication. After saying these things, he says to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go to awaken him. Disciples said, Humanly speaking, right? You got flu? Go and sleep, lah. Go and rest, <laughs> right? You're gonna recover that way. Let your body uh, recover. Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. But Jesus was speaking about his death. They thought he meant taking rest in sleep. And I'm, you know, uh, uh, reminding ourselves, you know, in, in Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, Paul also says, you know, talks about those who have died in the faith that they have fallen asleep. And the idea for us as Christians, you know, we do not fear death because it's a temporary condition. Those who die in Christ, it's like falling asleep. I mean, how many of you are afraid of sleeping? Most of us, I think, look forward to sleeping <laughs> if we can. You know, and, and, and it's not something to fear because you uh, need that rest. But this uh, classic miscommunication, Jesus then had to speak plainly to them. He says, Lazarus has died. And it's interesting, he says here, for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. So that you may believe, let us go to him. And so, that's what happens. They proceed. And you know, the faith and belief, in that sense, there's a little bit of unbelief or misunderstanding on the part of the disciples, but there is faith. But I'm, you know, so... Uh, um, um, it's, it's always important for us to take the whole counsel of God because oftentimes we take vignettes of people and we tend to label them. Thomas is one of them. Often we talk about Thomas as doubting Thomas because of that one time uh, post-resurrection, how he had doubted that Jesus had appeared. But you see, he was actually a man of great faith. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, he was the one that said, come on, let's go. If he dies, we die with him. I mean, the sense of loyalty, the willingness to follow Christ even unto death, you know, the willingness to lay down his life, take up his cross and follow Christ was evident in his, his uh, attitude. And I, I wonder, and this is speculation, Scripture doesn't talk about it, you know, the fact that Jesus did die, but didn't die in a glorious revolution, but died as a criminal on the cross. Maybe Thomas had expected one thing and something else happened. Thomas's doubt was probably born out of great disappointment. You know, and, and his hopes had been dashed. It's like he <laughs> doesn't want to hope in anything else anymore. That's uh, speculation. It's not scripture. <laughs> but I'm, I'm putting myself in his shoes. And, you know, the very human uh, emotions we carry with us may have well been there. But there's other 
example of faith is found in the uh, uh, woman named Martha. You know, we always talk about, oh, be a Mary, don't be a Martha. <laughs> As if Martha is not a, a, a person of faith. But you see here, it's quite different. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if, I had, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She knew that Jesus could heal Lazarus. She had utter faith in his healing power. And yet, it goes beyond that because she says, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. <laughs> the, the brother had been dead four days. And he's saying, you know, I know God, uh, you can do all things, anything. Whatever you ask, it'll be done. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise. And Martha said, you know, although she had faith, I guess her faith was <laughs> still tempered by doubt. Because she says, yeah, 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 he will rise again in the resurrection. <laughs> it means in eternity. The, 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 the promise is that he hasn't died forever, he has fallen asleep. On the last day, he will rise again, was her uh, response. But Jesus then gives her this wonderful saying, which we often quote in all our uh, um, uh, funerals. And it's often the text that's up there and the backdrop in, in, in the wakes that we have. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha, of course, said, yes, Lord, I believe. Not only did she believe in what he was saying, she believed in who Jesus was. Great faith. Her faith had grown to the point she understood that this person standing before her was more than a good teacher. He was the Christ, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the one that they were taught to look forward to. That's great belief, great faith that had grown, faith that had grown over time as they'd seen the works of God, for sure, but certainly as they met God Himself in the person of Jesus. You know, we've been uh, uh, praying for God's revival in this land. This past week, we had the opportunity, uh, my, my, my wife, my mother and I went to watch Jesus' Revolution. And it's the story of the revival that took place in the U.S. Uh, some 50-odd years ago, right? Uh, and how the Jesus people, the hippies, were won to Christ and they came in uh, large numbers, many characters that are still known and alive today. Um, uh, and, and we could identify with it. You know, it, one of the things that uh, struck me, because at the end there's always a, because it's a true story, they tell you, you know, it really peaked and it, it culminated in 1972. And we know in Singapore, the fruit of that revival overflowed into Singapore. 72 was when the clock tower revival took place, when students were moved to just pray in all their breaks and their recesses instead of going to play or go eat their lunch they would spend time in prayer, and we know that was the precursor to the revival that took place in Singapore in the 70s, of which Good Shepherd was one of the key places where that took place. Many of you, I know, were there. So we pray, Lord, do it again. You know, all the stories, and I've seen, I was a young boy who attended all these healing services, seeing people healed of cancer. Cancer you don't see immediately, but you hear reports later, uh, you know, of massive tumors disappearing, of people who walk in with crutches and walked out on their own two feet. 
right? Of all kinds of uh, miraculous healings, you can uh, read all the accounts of people who were eyewitnesses to it. And the desire is, and the, the hope, you know, we have when we say we want to see revival again, we say, yeah, we would love to see such signs and wonders again. Believing that when people see such signs and wonders, they will believe. But not always is that the case, is it? You look at this passage in particular, after Lazarus was raised from the dead, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, and they believed in him. Of course, he raised the dead. Why not? But not all of them. Because it says that, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. In other words, they wanted Jesus to die because they knew that the authorities wanted to kill him. And they basically reported where he is and said, go, arrest him, take care of this troublemaker, as it were. That even seeing with their own eyes a dead man who had been in the tomb for four days rise from the grave did not change their hearts. And it speaks to the reality that, you know, there is a hardness of heart that we need, you know, the Holy Spirit to come and reveal Himself to them. It goes beyond just the circumstances. that We, we, we need God to transform us, to open our eyes. The, the, the other theme that goes through John is light and darkness. And how some people love the darkness rather than the light. Rather than being allowed to receive the revelation that God has for them. We come now to the passage, of course, where Jesus weeps. And, you know, in uh, the translation, weep means basically he shed a tear. And we see this tender moment, and we see it as a tender moment, but actually so much more is taking place. Jesus weeps for our unbelief despite the growth of our faith, but he also weeps because he loves us. In uh, the passage, we can see that he really loved this family. From the start, you know, when the sisters sent word to Jesus, said, the one whom you love is ill. Didn't even have to mention his name because how much uh, Jesus loved this family. Again, in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And even, you know, when Jesus was weeping, the, after Jesus wept, verse 36, it says, the Jews said, see how he loved him. So when we come to that picture, you know, when we read this, we see that Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, unfortunately, the English language cannot always convey what the Greek uh, says. I remember I was telling my, uh, uh, the service yesterday when I was in seminary, one of my professors who was teaching, uh, in this case was Hebrew exegesis, uh, she used to say, you know, why it's so important. I, it's, it's a great struggle to have to learn. Other, I could barely manage the Chinese. They asked me to learn Hebrew and Greek as well. It was a big struggle. But she used to say, you know, if you read the Bible just in English, she used the analogy, it's like kissing your girlfriend through a glass or kissing your wife through a glass. You don't <laughs> get the full experience. And in, sometimes, you know, that seems to be the case, especially in this passage. Because we see this word, Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. We think of this gentle scene. But actually, it's a different word that's used there. And uh, uh, the best, better way of translating it, it's Jesus saw her wailing. And the people around her were also wailing. 
And if you've ever watched any movie or you've seen how they uh, uh, mourn in the Middle East, it's still true today. You know, they loud cries, they will be crying out, and and it's very demonstrative, and, and, you know, they, they let it all hang out, so to speak. And that was a scene that Jesus came to. But then we read, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. It seems like it's all internal. <laughs> the, the, the Greek gives us a very different picture because basically what it's saying is he was agitated and disturbed with indignant displeasure. He was angry. There was an anger that welled up within him when he saw this happening. What was he angry about? And then there's other anger, you know, verse 37, he said, um, although some said he loved Lazarus, see how much he loved him, others who were probably more skeptical said, could he, not he, who opened the eyes of the blind man, beggar blind, (laughs) uh, last week we heard of him, couldn't he have also kept this man from dying? Why was Jesus late? We saw earlier, right? He heard that Lazarus was not well, He said, oh, let's stay here another two days. (laughs) Anger at God not doing what He needs to do. One of the things that many of us struggle with when we think of God is how do you reconcile the God that we read of in the Old Testament, a God who seems to have, you know, anger and wrath, and the God of the New Testament whom we always think of as a God of love. That's a mischaracterization because in both the Old Testament and the New, God is a God of anger and He is also a God of love. It is His character and He's revealed Himself that way. It's just the way we read Scripture. Oftentimes we put on these filters. In this place, we see that Jesus was angry. How do you reconcile that anger? What was He angry at? I believe that he was angry at the reality of sin which leads to death. And the reason he was angry is because he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he loves us. Rod Whitaker, who was my uh, Greek, uh, or not Greek, Greek exegesis, yeah, he taught me Greek exegesis, but he was also my New Testament professor. Uh, is a Johannine scholar. I've told you about him in doing the class on Revelation. He starts out by saying, I've you know, been studying this book all my life. I don't understand it. <laughs> it's like, you don't understand what hope do we have? <laughs> anyway, Rod Whitaker is, uh, wrote the commentary uh, on, on John uh, and, um, for IVP, the IVP commentary series. And he says about this verse, the love of God for us and His wrath toward that which corrupts and destroys us, are two sides of a single coin. That the wrath of God is revealed because He loves us so much that He hates the sin that corrupts. That the wages of sin is death, the fact that we are separated from Him because of this sin, how can He not be angry at sin? It's not... Him being two-faced in that sense, it's, it's the same coin. It's inevitable that that's there. And we see this in this picture here. Which then brings me to my final point, the themes between life and death. You know, we, we know, of course, this miracle ends with uh, Lazarus coming out of the tomb. But we also had the reading uh, today from Ezekiel 37 
the valley of the dry bones. And, uh, you know, in verse 3, God said to um, Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? This is a very wise answer from Ezekiel. Oh Lord, only you know. <laughs> Let's not speculate. God, how do I know? I mean, in his mind probably, in my mind, it would have been not possible. But do you dare tell God it's impossible? <laughs> right? So it's the best answer would be to say, Lord, you know. And this uh, um, uh, account is really where God is revealing Himself. You know, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which is why when we read the Old Testament, it's not a different God from the New Testament. He reveals Himself. This is an example. We've seen, obviously, in John's Gospel, a God who raises the dead. But right there in the uh, um, uh, prophecy in Ezekiel, He is a God also who raises the dead to life. He raised uh, um, Lazarus to life. But the theme of death and life is this. Do you realize that Jesus raising Lazarus to life was the very thing that ultimately condemned him to death? What's beyond the reading that was read this morning, we see. The chief priests and the Pharisees, after the report had come to them, they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So you get to the heart of the reason why they were so threatened by Jesus. It's because their status was threatened. Their place was threatened. They were not, you know, uh, after the things of God, they were, you know, there were very human motivations behind their actions. And, and it goes on. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John gives us a commentary. He says, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. You know, it's, uh, the reality is that even flawed people, individuals, selfish person like Caiaphas, God can use to speak truth. You know, that's why we always uh, search out the truth and why we are attentive to God's word, uh, whatever uh, uh, the, the messenger may be. Because, you know, God's no respect of person. He speaks uh, as he will. And certainly we see that ultimately uh, Lazarus was raised to life and we, we want to uh, consider it. But may I remind you that actually the better way of thinking of Lazarus, Lazarus wasn't resurrected in the real sense of the word. What he was was he was resuscitated, right? Because he was dead, he came to life, but he's dead again. Uh, archaeologists, 1873, found a, a whole... Um, bunch of ossuaries. Uh, Jewish burial practice was after the bones, uh, after the body had decomposed, they would collect the bones, put them into these little bone boxes. They found a bunch of these boxes near Bethany with the names Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Now, there's no way to determine, is it, are these the three people? But it certainly tells us that there were three people. It is a common name. 
in, in those days. All right, these were three common names. But nonetheless, we know that Lazarus eventually died as well. That even if the name box Lazarus is not his, I mean, apparently there were crosses on it, so they were Christians. You know, he was certainly would have been somewhere there. And so that's why I say Lazarus wasn't, didn't, wasn't really uh, uh, facing the resurrection. What he faced was in reality a resuscitation. But we move ahead and, and, and for us to consider the Valley of Dry Bones and, and get back to it, because this is the crux of the matter. We worship a God who raises the dead. And I wonder how many of us understand that fully for ourselves. When Ezekiel saw this Valley of Dry Bones, what God was showing him was the heart of the people who were in exile. In verse, verses uh, 11 and following, God said to Ezekiel, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. And the people of God who had been enduring exile, you can imagine, you know, for them, they must have been crying, God, where are you? Some of us here may be facing circumstances in our life and we do ask that question, God, where are you? I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. My bones are dried up. My hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Our hearts cry out in desperation. And God says, I will open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people. This is a far greater miracle in many ways. Because you stop and you think about it, Lazarus, yeah, was starting to decompose, but at least his body was more or less there to resuscitate him from that. This is a picture of bones that have been long dead. I mean, in this state, they must have been there for years already for the body to have fully decompose. There's nothing left but bones. And yet the Lord was able to form sinew and muscle and then breathe life into these bones to raise up a mighty army that is the God that we worship. And He says, I will put My Spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land and, I shall get, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Whatever your circumstances are today, God says, I will do it. I can breathe life into you again. Uh, there's a third reading that's often uh, uh, assigned for the week. We didn't do it because the readings were so long, but it, the other readings from Romans chapter 8. And the passage ends with this verse. And I think it's a powerful verse that we need to take with us. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and He does... 
he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. That the God who raises the dead dwells in each and every one of us who believe in him. That through his Spirit he can give life to the dead bones that you face. That we are not hopeless, we are not cut off. That we can have life and have it abundantly here and now. Let's take a moment as we reflect on this. To bring before the Lord that which is deep in our hearts. What circumstance you may be facing, what uncertainty that lies ahead, what situation that seems so hopeless that you've all but given up on. God who raises the dead is here. And He dwells richly in each and every one of us by His Holy Spirit, those of us who believe. I want to pray a prayer for you. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to Him. And if this is the cry of your heart, I want you to just gently place your hand upon your heart. Just pray for the Lord to fill you afresh with His Holy Spirit, to bring life to your mortal bodies, to bring life, breathe life into those bones that are dead. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace right now, Lord. Lord, you know the condition of our hearts. You know the condition of our lives. Lord, so often our cry is like that of that father. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. First and foremost, Lord, we repent of the fact that we have not turned to you, the source of life, that we've chased after different sources. We've hewn out for ourselves cisterns that are broken, that hold no water. But we thank you, Lord, that you have come to us gently reminding us that you are the one who raises the dead. Help us to put our faith in you afresh, Lord. Help us, Lord, to cling to you because, Lord, you are clinging to us. Help us, Lord, to hold fast to you because you have a hold upon us. We pray for you to move mightily in our hearts by your Holy Spirit to restore, to revive, to bring us back to our first love and to revive us again. These things we ask and we pray. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to do the offertory, and it's a time of ministry as well.